0: All right, so last week we got through about eight verses of the book of Revelation, and this letter was penned by the apostle John. Now, John finds himself on the island of Patmos, and he is there, and the Lord reveals himself to John. So the point of Revelation that we found out from verse 1 through 8 is, number one, The word revelation is actually the word apocalypse or apocalypsis in the Greek. It's where we get our word apocalypse. And it means the revelation or the revealing or the unveiling. And if you remember last week, I actually had a picture of a statue that they were removing the covering of. It was Stan Musial. And it was a removing of the covering so you could see all the work that the artist had done to this piece of stone or this piece of metal in order to make it this ornate, place, this memorial, this remembrance. Now, for us, the apocalypse or the revelation of Jesus Christ is revealing him for all that he is. It's revealing to us our Savior. Now, if you only have in your mind this picture of Jesus being nailed to the cross, and that's all you ever think of when you think of Jesus, you're you're seeing a side of Jesus that he came to be. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says that Jesus came the first time and he himself said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He came to be the propitiation, the payment for our sin. He became to be the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world for our salvation. And so Jesus came to be literally a doormat to mankind so that we could be saved. He showed his grace through Jesus. But the problem is is that's only one side of our Savior. The other side is the conquering king. So the first time, he comes as a suffering servant. The second time, when he comes again, he will come as a conquering king. And if you'll remember, when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he is sitting on the colt full of a donkey. And that was a sign to any city you would ride into. If a king rode on a donkey, he was coming in under a banner of peace. But when a king comes in on a horse, and I'm not talking about this little horse, I'm talking about a big, mighty horse with all these muscles just ripping, just snorting and ready to go. He's coming judgment he's coming to conquer that city and so jesus is getting ready to be revealed to us not as a suffering servant but as a glorified risen king who will have the authority and every knee will bow every eye will tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father and so john gets a direct vision from god who was asked to record it for future generations to read about Now, interestingly enough, a little factoid, if you're into little facts, 404 passages in the book of Revelation, 360 of them quote or allude to the Old Testament. So if you've ever heard somebody say, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. Well, most of the New Testament, if you read it, it's really exposing all the things that the Old Testament had concealed until the time that Jesus came to open them up for us. So verse 3, there's a blessing attached to reading the book of Revelation. Those who read, those who hear, and those who keep what it says will in fact be blessed. So if you say, well, I'm too scared to read it, just know that there's a blessing attached to just reading it and hearing it and trying to glean from it. So the outline can be found in verse 19 of chapter 1. He says, write down the things, Jesus telling John, write down the things that you have seen. In chapter one, we'll finish it today. And what he has seen is Jesus. What John saw was Jesus. John is in a little different spot than you and I are. He actually got to walk with Jesus. And yet what we find is that John is still learning more about Jesus though he walked with him on the earth. God's going to reveal something to him about Jesus uh, God's going to reveal something to John about Jesus that he didn't yet know. And number two, he says, write what is now. And what is now is at, in John's day, about 96 AD, there were churches in Asia that had been planted, and Jesus is going to have a very specific word for each one of those churches. And as we talk about them, we'll talk about the fact that even his instruction to the churches can be very relevant for today. And then the future, what will take place, and I said last time the Greek, I know just enough Greek to get in trouble, but the word is metatauta, which means after these things, and if you look in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now after these things, so you know that you're in that third part of the book of Revelation, and so the vision, the churches, and the future, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place after these things. So as we start this morning, I'm going to read verse 1 through 8, and then we'll continue in verse 9. He writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So you don't have to spiritualize that. There were churches, literally seven of them, in Asia. He's writing this letter much like the New Testament letters were written to an audience. This letter is also. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is, him who was, and him who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, And washed us from our sins in his own blood. So if there's any confusion as to who he's giving the glory to. He says to him who loved us. And he proved it in that he washed us from our sin in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. Now that word behold means pay attention, take heed, listen in, lean in to what I'm about to say. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. So if someone says to you, it's already happened, Jesus already returned, I would question that because this Bible right here says that when he comes on the clouds, as he ascended into heaven, he will come back on the clouds And it says clearly here, every eye will see him. It won't be something that's hidden. And so even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So uh, just a little devotional thought. But we live in a day and age where you can actually, I can right now get on my internets, on the computer, and I can see the western wall that is in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. I can watch it 24-7 if I want to. I don't know why you'd want to, but you could. So every I will see, he's going to come back physically. And when he comes back, I truly believe it's possible that somebody might just take one of our little idle phones, aim it in the air and go Facebook Live or Internet Live in some form or fashion. We live in a day and age where something can happen, and everyone in the world instantaneously can be notified and turn on the tube, the YouTube, or the internet on their phone, and we can all see things simultaneously, no matter what time zone you're in. So if Jesus comes back in the clouds, and your question is, well, if he comes back, I'm, where's he going to come back at? I won't, I, who knows if I'll be there? I don't think it's going to matter. I think every eye, literally there, means every eye we'll see it. We'll be blown away. It will be something unlike we've ever seen. You think about the the world disasters and tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and the things that we can see because of a webcam. Think about that, seeing Jesus coming back while he's coming back and the power of the internet. If, If it's going to be on the internet, I don't know. But just a thought. So as we look at this, he says, Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And I truly believe that some of the mourning will be because dad said he was coming back and I didn't get my chores done yet. For us as believers, I think some of the mourning will be because we wasted our lives doing things that didn't matter. And yet Jesus comes back and we go, Man, I'm so glad my lawn looks good, but Jesus gave me things to do while he was gone and I didn't touch them. Or you insert your thing. Maybe mine's my lawn. But that's that being said, I think there will be perspective. I think that many will mourn because they're like, oh snap, I didn't bow the knee and now I don't get a chance anymore. But I think many even believers will mourn because they'll realize I wasted my life. I wasted my salvation. And so here he goes on. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. He who is, he who was, and he who is to come, the Almighty, pointing to his deity. So verse 9, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, just as I was reading to you the first three verses this morning, what I noticed is that he says this in verse 2. This message was given to John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw, past tense. And yet, so that's God's testimony of John, of what he had been spending his life doing. And when we find out, he's on the island of Patmos as an exile in prison. For what? Exactly what he was commended for. He was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for testimony of Jesus Christ. Because of his boldness to do what God had given him to do, he did not get rewarded in this earth. And most of the time, you won't. People that do what Jesus gives them to do will not necessarily get high-fived. Now, there are benefits to it. And God's grace shines into our lives. And and people notice the work that you're doing for Jesus. But by and large, you will not be high-fived. You will not become famous for serving Jesus because the world doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so he says here, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation. John doesn't say, I, the Apostle John, Hereby render unto you instruction because I'm so great. He says, I who am your brother. He identifies with us on an equal level. And then he also says, and I am your companion. Now, a brother is one thing. We all treat our families a little differently sometimes when we do our friends. But he says, I'm your brother and I'm your companion. I'm your friend. I choose to be around you. But then he says, your companion in tribulation. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, I prefer not to be in tribulation, and I don't want anybody to be in there with me. But if you've ever been through tribulation, if you've ever been through troubled waters, if you've ever been through hard times in your life, it's the people that stick around you in that tribulation that make the difference, but also afterwards you come out and you're like, you're bros. Like, you get each other on a level that nobody else can people that go off to war and they serve in that way they have people that are friends to them not because they get along on every piece but because they've suffered together and as believers when we are obedient to the word of God and we give our lives to serving him the crazy thing is is that our relationships with the people that are also doing the same thing there's a unity you just can't make happen there's a, there's a brotherhood that you can't explain. It's just there. You get each other. You, you know, you're, you're besties. But you don't ever even have to say it because you can look at that person, not say a phrase, and they get exactly how you feel by the look on your face because they've been there. They've done that. They've got the t-shirt with you. And so John says this to the church. I'm your brother and companion in tribulation. Even though I walk with Jesus, I'm not better than you. I'm actually still in the fight with you. He says, and I'm your companion in tribulation and in the patience of Jesus Christ. What is the patience of Jesus Christ? The patience that it takes to wait for him to come back and set things right. Lord, you said you would set things right on earth. Why hasn't it happened yet? Why are we still fighting wars? Why are families still against each other? Why are we still killing babies? Why are people suffering needlessly with these diseases? And why, why, why is there suffering? Because he hasn't come back yet. So it takes patience to wait upon him. But the psalmist wrote, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles, Isaiah chapter 40. They will, they will not grow faint. They will not grow weary because their, their strength will be found in the one that they're trusting in. Not themselves, but in the Lord. So he says, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But it says in verse 10 that that didn't stop him from worshiping. Just because he had been persecuted, just because he, had, he was a leader in the Ephesian church in the New Testament, he was a leader in the Ephesian church and his boldness as a witness of Jesus Christ caused him to be thrown into exile Historians tell us that they tried to punish him and boil him in oil, and it did not affect him. He lived through it. They couldn't kill him. I find that interesting because when they couldn't figure out what to do with him, they sent him to exile. And while he's in exile, he doesn't go, God's forsaken me. I'm out. Instead, he goes to this. Docile place, this exiled place, this desert of a place. Now, if you look up Patmos, it's like this beautiful vacation resort. It was not in his day. It wasn't an old folks retirement resort where you don't have to deal with youngins. It was actually a place of desolation. They sent you there at its prison camp, they sent you to labor. And when you got there, you were by yourself. And I don't care what anybody says, even the most introverted person needs to be around people to have at least some sort of sanity. And, and he's by himself. And what we find is that the Lord took him from this place of ministry to a place of being by himself, loneliness, so that he could reveal something to himself to, to John that John didn't yet know about him. He gave him further rest revelation while he was in desolation and so it says here while i was there verse 10 i was in the spirit on the lord's day and i heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last and what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in asia to ephesus to smyrna to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I want to point out that many times you want God to, maybe you're not and maybe you do, but you want God to give you something so that you can be an encouragement to others. But I would submit to you that you will not be able to receive anything from Jesus unless you allow yourself to have quiet time with Jesus personally alone. Jesus would rise early in the morning. He would spend alone time with the Father in order to be effective in his ministry. And if you want to be used by God greatly, if you want to be used by God even slightly, you cannot do it without some sort of stillness with Jesus in your life as a pattern. But here John gets a, uh, I don't think that he picked this stillness. I don't think that he picked this loneliness. And yet what God does is he visits him in his loneliness and he speaks to him audibly as a trumpet. Now, I don't know about you guys, for those of you that have a trumpet player in your house, uh, you know that when someone speaks to you as a trumpet, you're like, would you please be quiet? You are the most annoying loud thing ever. And if you have neighbors that have kids that play the trumpet, I played the tuba, okay? Okay. So, um, if you got within 500 yards of my house when I was practicing as a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grade, it always sounded like a bull moose got lost in the woods. It was, Whoa! I guarantee neighbors for miles thought, we're going moose hunting tonight. You know, because it doesn't sound like a, an elk. Elk are more like a trumpet, you know. Um, but anyway, it says his voice was as of a trumpet. So it was distinguishable between him being crazy because he was alone and the Lord speaking. But it says there, he says, I'm the beginning. I'm the last. You're not over yet. Your life is not complete. You being on this island is not the end. It's actually the beginning of a new message. Not a new message, but a further revelation about Jesus. So verse 12 says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know that I can see sound waves. I always think that's funny. He turned to see the voice. It doesn't say that he turned to see the person. He turned to see the, the, the noise, the voice. So he's on the island. He's exiled. He was there for the word of God. He was there for the testimony of Jesus. That was his location, right? But also, verse 10 says his location was he was in the Spirit, in the Spirit, on the Lord's Day. So he didn't have a church to go to on Patmos, but he was still in that mode like, hey, it's the Lord's Day. I want to worship the Lord, whether there's anybody else here or not. So while he's there, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and God rewards him with his voice. So what happened then? He heard the voice, and then it goes on to say that he turned to see the voice that spoke. waters he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength now i have there for you a picture of this description and it's jesus he's standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands now we see glorified jesus no longer suffering jesus Interestingly enough, if you turn to John 17, verse 5 and verse 24, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He didn't just pray for his disciples that were there, but he said, I also pray for those who will be my disciples because of their testimony. And in John chapter 17, verse 5, it says there, Jesus is praying. Now, if you've ever wanted to know how to pray or how Jesus prayed, yes, you can go to the Lord's Prayer But we have his high priestly prayer on our behalf in John 17. And in verse 5, as he's praying, it says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. And then if you zoom forward to verse 24, another part of his prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundations of the world. So he desires for all believers to behold the glory of Jesus. And yet here through the pen of John, John gets an eyewitness account, writes it down. We're very fortunate because people have tried to paint it and we have a copy We get to behold the glory of Jesus Christ through the pen of John because of John's suffering. And so seven branched gold lampstands represented Israel in the midst of a dark world. If you look at Exodus chapter 25 in your own time, verse 31 through 39, it's a description of this seven branched candlestand. Now, many of you weren't raised around multiple cultures, probably I wasn't until I went to Israel and I saw the lampstand described in Exodus 25. You know what it looks like? A menorah. The Jewish tradition to write, to light seven candles. And, and yet here in the midst of these seven lampstands, Jesus Christ is in the midst of them. So this Old Testament picture of this lampstand in the in the very tabernacle where people would go to meet with God, was a type of what Jesus would be in his glorified state. You'd have these seven golden candlestands, which we're going to find out represent the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And they are lamp stands, and on top of them is the light. But in the midst of these seven lights is who? Jesus. And in his right hand are these Messengers, it says in the New King James, an angel, these seven angels, and these seven angels represent, they are messengers to the seven churches. Now, some see them as angels, the word means messenger. Some believe that it actually talks about them as the pastors of those seven churches, which, as a pastor myself, is very encouraging to hear that not only is Jesus in the midst of his church, But also, he has the leaders of the true church in his right hand, which is the hand of power. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and actually prays for you and I. And so, Jesus is not only in the midst of the church, but he's in the control of the church. So, I got ahead of myself, forgive me, but if you look at um, this picture right here, you have the Mediterranean Sea. And then you have Greece, and then you see the little boot kicking the weird soccer ball, flat soccer ball on the left. And that's Italy, where Rome was, and Sicily off the tip. But then you see Greece, and then if you go to the right, you see uh, several names. You see Asia Minor, which is our modern-day Turkey. And in that area, the church was birthed And you can see on the lower right-hand portion, Jerusalem. And as the gospel spread from Jerusalem and Israel there, it went up to Antioch and then into the Gentile nation of modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And we have seven churches there. And if you see the word Patmos, you go right above it, there's Ephesus. Right above that is Smyrna. Right above that is Pergamum. You make a right and you go to the east, you see Thyatira. Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. These were actual churches in that day that Jesus cared so much about that he wanted to commend them, some of them, and in some of them he wanted to rebuke them, but he has a word for each one of them to let them know I I know what's going on in your church, what's going on in your region, and I want to speak into that. And so Jesus gives a specific word for John to go and share with those churches. So what I love about this is the practicality. Think about mail routes. Think about bus routes. That You always start at the beginning, go to the end. So he gives them in the order in chapter 2 and 3 as if you were going to follow right along that pattern that I just read. And so all that to say these were actual places. And I got a little zoomed in version there. So he's in this island called Patmos off the coast of Ephesus, and he's by himself. So he reveals Jesus to us in a very specific way. He uses this figurative language. We get these 7 branch candlestand. Then we get this picture of the Son of Man. Jesus referred to himself here as the Son of Man. And if you read the book of Matthew, this was a term that was synonymous. He would call himself the Son of Man. In Matthew, he would call himself the Son of God and other uh, gospel accounts. But these are synonymous words. They don't mean something different. But as the son of man, he refers to himself. And you actually, if you turn in your own time to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, again, he refers to himself and uh, Daniel in his vision gets to see all the kingdoms of the earth. And in chapter 7, he says, then there was one like the son of man. And he describes him almost exactly like John sees him in the book of Revelation. So where is Jesus? Well, I've already told you he's in the midst of the lampstands. And he's described here as having some very specific attributes. He's clothed with a garment down to the feet and he's girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow. I love this because if you look at Proverbs chapter 16 verse 31, Many of you, many of us despise gray hair, right? But if you look at Jesus in his glorified state, we see Jesus with white hair. We see him crowned with wisdom. And if I can ever get there, in Proverbs chapter 16, in verse 31, I hope this is encouragement to those of you that still have your hair. I'll never keep my hair But you'll have silver hair. Not only will you be a silver fox, but Proverbs says, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory. It's found in the way of righteousness. So think about that. The most righteous person who ever lived and died and then lives eternally has a head crowned with silver hair, and it's a crown of glory. And it's an award for those who live righteously. And so, just a little devotional thought there, but I think it's important. We despise aging, and yet with age in the way of the Lord comes wisdom. Comes a crown of glory. Doesn't matter if anybody will listen to you or not, it's still there. And for those who seek wisdom, they'll be able to draw that from you if you'll abide in Christ and give godly wisdom. And so, he is white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And so if you look at Daniel chapter 10, he describes this vision of the Son of Man, and it says his eyes were like fire and his feet like fine brass, pure. Brass is a very It's a very strong metal and it's created through multiple metals being burned together and the the impurities being removed. It's purified. And yet what I want to point out is in Matthew chapter 6. Again, if I ever get there, Matthew chapter 6, getting a little bit of Bible calisthenics in this morning. Verse 22. as we look at Jesus with his eyes like a flame of fire Jesus himself says in Matthew 6:22 the lamp of the body is the eye if therefore your eye is good your whole body will be full of light Jesus being the light of the world has eyes that are a lamp think about it the psalmist wrote Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So his eyes, where his eyes look, actually illuminate things that need to be exposed. He says, verse 23, But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. And yet Jesus, the light of the world, looking upon us, seeing sinful man, exposing us for our unrighteousness, and yet providing salvation and forgiveness. He does his purifying work in his eyes as flames. And it says there, his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, just a couple weeks ago, we went down to the, the Millstream Gardens, and it was flowing with many waters. And and yet what was amazing about it is just the noise. As you walk up to this balcony that's there, they've built this porch. And as you look over it, it feels like you're in this like wonderful Colorado Class 5 rapids. And yet as you stand there, you just hear this roar. And it can't be duplicated except for water running over a waterfall. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls and you've been blessed in that way... I just hear the sound of many waters and it makes me think of this verse. So the voice that he has is just this overwhelming noise that it's a low roar and yet every other sound is drowned out by the voice of God's voice. And it says he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, not the sun when it's cloudy, but the sun, when there's like not a cloud and it's in the sky and it's the closest in summertime. And so he says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And I love this because the word of God, according to Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Whoops not verse 12. That's what I put right. It is right. I'm in chapter 5. Man, I need to get a bigger print Bible, I think. I'm, I'm only fooling myself. He says um, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow it discerns the thoughts and the intents of our heart there's no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to his eyes of whom to whom we must give an account but the point is that the word of god is something that exposes and it divides us and it removes like a surgeon skillfully removes cancer from our bodies so also the word of god is used to divinely remove sin to remove the impurity. And so it says there that as he's seen this description, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. Have you ever heard somebody say that when they see Jesus, they're going to have some things to say to him? Like, I'm going to have some questions for Jesus. When I get to see him in heaven, I'm going to have to ask him about my old aunt, whatever, that died even though she was a saint or, you know, this cancer that so-and-so had to go through or this thing that I experienced. And, and I think that we have this idea that when we get to see him, we're, we're going to be able to settle some beef we had with him. But I think what we're going to see is when we see Jesus in his glorified state, we're going to drop to our knees and we're going to be silent and we're going to listen to him speak like we should have in our, our entire life. And I love this because graciously it doesn't say that he said, Yeah, you're right, you should be on the floor. It says, He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He keeps telling us this I am the first. I am the last. You've fallen down as if you're dead because you've seen me, but it's not over yet. Now, he says, Don't be afraid. The same thing happened when Daniel was in the midst of a vision. He'd been fasting for weeks. And as he was fasting and as he was hungering for some sort of vision from the Lord, Daniel sees the risen Lord. He sees what we just saw in Revelation. And it says he fell down and he felt weak. And it says when the Lord laid his hand on him and helped him up, immediately he was strengthened. And he was able to deal with all the things that Jesus was showing him. And I love the words he says here to John, don't be afraid. Now, in the epistles of Paul, Paul in Corinthians was testifying boldly, and it says that he was persecuted greatly. And yet in the middle of the night, Jesus comes to Paul and he says, don't be afraid. Paul was fearing that they would kill him. And I believe that John was fearing that they would attempt to kill him again. And yet, what Jesus says to him is, do not be afraid. And I want to ask you this question this morning. What is God showing you in your life? What is he taking you through that you're just at wit's end with and you're exhausted? What is the thing that is causing you to go, man, I I don't have it. I don't have the faith. I don't have the ability whatever it might be, or I've messed this up so bad that God cannot possibly redeem my situation. What is it? You know what it is. And I believe the Lord would tell us this morning, don't be afraid. Look at Jesus. See him in his glorified, unconquered state. He is a conquering king. He has victory eternally. So your circumstances in light of his victory he says, Don't be afraid. I've got this. He says, I'm the first. I am the last. I'm the first word, and I will be the last word in your situation. I am he who is alive. I am he who was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. The thing that you're afraid of might even be death. What Jesus says is, I got the keys to that city, and no one gets the final word. If I want to unlock death and unleash it upon you, you will receive that. And if I want to make sure you never die, you will receive that. But you got to trust me. I've got this. So then after all of that, he strengthens him with his words. Verse 19, he says, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this. And then he gives them an he exposes to him what he's saying about the seven stars and the seven candle stands. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches themselves. I am there in their midst. And so John falls to his feet, Jesus comforts John and tells him not to be afraid. How many times has Jesus already said this to John? I was thinking about this this week. Think about the passage where Jesus says, Get on this boat, let's go to the other side. And they're in the Sea of Galilee, this big storm comes in. Jesus is asleep in the boat, and the disciples are freaking out. Jesus, wake up! Don't you know we're going to die? Jesus wakes up and he looks at creation. He says, Peace be still. And the storm stops. The waves stop. Jesus has said, Don't be afraid to John before. And I love this because Jesus is always telling us not to be afraid. And we are always getting afraid of things that are less powerful than Jesus. And so, how often had Jesus said that to Israel? don't be afraid. We were just reading in Exodus this week, as the Pharaoh and his soldiers and the chariots are all approaching the nation of Israel. They're standing at the edge of the Red Sea. And as the Red Sea opens up, it hasn't opened up yet. There's not a way of escape. And yet what God says to the people of Israel says, don't be afraid. You have only to be silent. I'm going to fight this battle. And yet, as they're standing at the edge of the sea and these chariots are coming at them, they don't have any weapons to defend themselves. And yet the pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness gets behind them, overshadows them. The east wind picks up, and all night long it blows. The chariots can't get to the Israelites. The, the way is being prepared, and as they pass through the Red Sea and they get to the other side, it says that the chariots chase them, and as they chase them, I think it was foolish, they chase them through the Red Sea with the wind blowing it up, knowing that it had to be a miracle, and yet when they get out to the other side, every last Israelite And then their enemies are in the midst of the sea. He says, Moses, put your hand up. And as he puts his hand up with his staff, he releases the water and destroys their enemies. And that's what he does for us. Don't be afraid. I got this. I'm already preparing your salvation. You need but to be silent and trust me. And so the seven stars, the angels, the messengers of the seven churches The messenger God uses in his church is anybody, really, who's willing to listen for a message. How comforting to know that where God keeps his messengers is in his pan of power. But then the seven lampstands, the seven churches, and I love this because as lampstands, the lampstand holds up the light, right? But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus talked about light, and not only that he was the light of the world, but as the church has been left here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand. Huh. And it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, Therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And glorify your Father in heaven. So, where is Jesus? He's in the midst. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says this He says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So, John was seeing a reality. That Maybe you and I don't think about all the time And as we get ready to take communion this morning This is what I want you to think about That the same jesus that was with the disciples on the night that he was betrayed He was in the room with them Giving them the bread and the cup signifying that he was going to die for their sins That he was the lamb from passover that he was the one that came to conquer death And that he came to do it specifically for them is the same Jesus that John is now communing with and receiving this revelation. And yet you and I have been told that as believers, as disciples, that we are to partake in communion, to eat a meal with him, Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate at Christmas, God with us. And yet still today, if we are willing to believe it and receive it, he is here just like the seven churches In our midst as we take communion. That he's actually provided the communion. That he's actually provided this remembrance until he returns and he will look exactly like we described today. That we would see Jesus. That we would see his hand upon our lives. That we would see that he is in our midst even today here at A.V. Chapel at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning that he desires to commune with us, he desires to be, a, he, he wants us to see him for who he is so that we are overwhelmed, as we sang earlier, that we would be undone by his presence. If you're not, I don't think you've seen him. And at the same time, he wants to be the one who lays his hand on our shoulder and says, don't be afraid. I'm not done. You don't have to be afraid of me anymore. You've approached me by faith you've been cleansed by my blood there's no judgment for you there's no condemnation if anything there's a deeper revelation what is God wanting to reveal to you this morning so as we take communion I want you to think about those things and realize that as we look at Jesus it actually will give us more clarity for the rest of everything that goes on in our lives so father as we get ready to take communion as we Uh, spend this time just a few moments partaking the lord's supper lord help us to remember that this is something that you did physically with your disciples and you do it now with us and though we can't see you you've promised to be here in our midst so father for those that have unconfessed sin they need to deal with i pray that they would know you're here and you're willing to hear to give grace that your blood is good enough to cleanse them and to make them righteous again. For those that are downcast and overwhelmed by life, maybe there's sickness, maybe there's problems going on in their family, maybe they're overwhelmed by their job, maybe they just feel like a failure in every area of their life. Lord, help them to realize that you're here to put your hand on them and to remind them not to be afraid, but to trust you. And for those of us, that maybe you don't have anything on our minds right now. We just need to experience your presence afresh. I pray that this would be a time where we do. That as you have promised to be here, that we would by faith recognize that you are here and that we would just talk to you about the things that, that we're dealing with and, and just um, give it all to you. So Father, we just pray you'd have our, your way with our hearts during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we sing this song, um, come up, take communion. We do open communion here. You don't have to be a member. matter of fact, we don't have membership. Um, If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table. If you've not yet confessed Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to do that. Maybe lean to someone next to you that you know is a believer, and then come take communion with us. Everybody's welcome to the table, but we all come through Christ. So...